0: You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atiyah, and I'm in the Greenwich Village apartment of the writer, Jim Holt. Lately, he's been asking himself questions like, why is there something rather than nothing? And why should there be a universe at all, let alone this universe? Jim's the kind of guy who thrives on this sort of thing. In fact, he's in the process of writing a book about the puzzle of existence. Jim, welcome to ThoughtCast. Do you really want these questions answered?
1: Um, <laughs> oh, would I disenchant the, uh, the cosmos if I uh, succeeded in answering them? Uh, I don't think there's much of a risk of that. Uh, what, what, I, what I think is fascinating is to see to what extent you can even think and talk meaningfully about them. In many ways, the deepest metaphysical puzzles are puzzles that we can all think about.
0: But what about solving them? Do you think you would want to live in a world where these puzzles have been solved? The puzzle of existence? Uh,
1: <laughs> well, actually, most people are happy to live in such a world. Most people think that the puzzle is solved by the existence of God. Uh, you know, something like 90% of Americans um, say they believe in God. And if you believe in God, you believe that God is an, a being that is self-caused, who, whose existence is built into his very nature, And therefore, and then why does the world exist? Well, God for some reason decided to create the world and the puzzle of existence is thereby solved. Uh, I'm not satisfied with that. I think that one of the great objections to the neo-atheist case that that has been made by thinkers like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and uh, Sam Harris is that they don't have an answer to the question, why should should there be a world at all? Why should uh, a cosmos exist? Once you dispense with the God hypothesis, then this question becomes mysterious again. And so I want to approach it from a secular perspective. Without the hypothesis of God, can we make some progress in understanding why there is a world rather than just nothing?
0: Jim, you've written about these topics before, a lot, in fact, in articles you've written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, New York Review of Books. And there are some themes that keep reappearing, notably religion and death, and you've made it pretty clear that you're not yourself religious, but perhaps you're getting a little bit worried about death.
1: Mm. Yes, I think that death is something to worry about. You know, this is the natural attitude. We all have a terrible fear of, of death, whether it means annihilation, the end of our existence, or whether it means a transformation to some other state of being, maybe in an afterlife where we might be you know, punished eternally, that sort of thing. And what interests me is the way that philosophers have tried to take the sting out of death by uh, various arguments. These arguments go back to the Epicureans, to Epicurus himself and Lucretius. And they say, well, don't get so worried about death because your non-existence after you die is just the mirror image of your non-existence before you were born, and you don't worry about not existing in all the centuries before you were born. So why should you worry about not existing after your death?
0: What about you, though, Jim? Oh,
1: do, do I worry about uh, your death? I actually, I think it would, in many ways, it would be a good career move for me, and um, <laughs> it would solve uh, almost all of my problems. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that life is—I don't know how your life is, but mine. Sort of hovers around the zero point that separates pleasure from pain and happiness from misery. And every once in a while, I'll get welcome. a little spike above <laughs> above into the happiness region, but then you immediately go back down close to the zero point. Then you you creep below that into the misery region, but I fluctuate around that point. Um, and uh, what I really cherish about life is is being conscious. And I think it's that it to me that's the subjective counterpart to the question, why should the universe exist? Why should consciousness exist? Why should myself exist? And when I look into my consciousness, I find it very difficult even to locate a self. You know, David Hume, the philosopher, said, when I I look within, when I introspect, all I see are my states of mind, my thoughts, my sensations, but I can't find my self Um, So, this is another, you know, all of these issues are bound up. The the question why the universe exists may seem to be a very abstract metaphysical question, but to me, it sort of, it rhymes with the question, why do I exist? And what will, you know, what will happen to the world when I go out of existence?
0: Well, in fact, you've told the New York Times, Jim, that quote, to me, the only thing more astonishing than the world's existence is the fact that I exist.
1: Well, you know, it's such a. The, the, the odds of, that any of us should exist are, are very long. When you think about.
0: But what's it, so fascinating to you about your own existence? Well, I,
1: one thing I think is suppose my parents had decided to, uh, because of the um, uh, contingencies of their, the scheduling of their marital life way back when, suppose I had been conceived a week later than I was actually conceived. In that case, it would have been a different sperm combining with the egg. And there would be a different genetic identity, and a person with a different genetic identity would not be me. And so I think how infinitesimally unlikely it was for that particular sperm and egg to join up and to result in me. And if that hadn't happened, my world would not exist. I mean, in a sense, there would have been nothing rather than something. And know, this is you know, this is is a very uh, Uh, sort of egoistical way to look at at the thing. I mean, the idea that when I die, my world goes out of existence, that's a... John
0: Updike felt the same uh,
1: way. Yeah, and uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein felt that way in the Tractatus. He wrote that the, I am not something that exists in the world, I am the limits of my world, and when I die, my world dies with me. Um, Another question in in connection with this that, that occurs to me is, what if the universe had never given rise to conscious life Would a universe in which there was no mind, in which there was no consciousness, would that be a universe that really existed at all? So, I mean, these, whatever, I'm I'm being terribly muddled here. Existence is consciousness, yeah. Yeah, but whenever I start thinking about existence, I start (laughs) thinking about consciousness. When I think about consciousness, I think about the cessation of consciousness, i.e. death. And the important thing in thinking about the puzzle of existence is to distinguish all of these problems and not let them could have joined up into one big muddle, which is what I just allowed them to do, and for that, I apologize.
0: (laughs) Jim, for this book, you've had the opportunity to travel around interviewing theologians, philosophers, scientists, and you were able to speak to John Updike before he died. What was his take on the puzzle of existence?
1: The reason I wanted to talk to John Updike was because years ago, I read one of his novels called Roger's Version. Uh, It was written, I think, in 1986 or 1987. And I think it's one of his finest novels. And in the novel, there's a beautiful virtuoso passage of about seven or eight pages where a character at a cocktail party is explaining how the universe came into existence out of nothingness without a god creating it. And I thought, you know, of all of the accounts I've read by uh, uh, scientists, uh, by cosmologists and so forth, I've never come across a more lucid account of creation ex nihilo, a scientific account, than I have in this novel by John Updike. So I thought this, this is a man who's thought long and hard about something and nothing and how the world came into existence. And I also knew that John Updike is a very uh, theologically inclined man. He used to, uh, he's written some magnificent essays in the past on theologians like uh, Karl Barth and Paul Tillich. And so I thought, you know, he also understands the religious dimension.
0: Was John Updike a believer in God?
1: interesting question. John Updike claimed to be a fideist, meaning that he believed in God but could give no rational justification for his belief. Indeed, not only could he not give a rational justification for it, but he felt that any rational justification would undermine his faith. And Updike told me that in a dark period early in his life, it was the the sermons of the uh, theologian Karl Barth that really kept him sort of psychologically sound. And Karl Barth, who was a, um, a, a German and Swiss theologian who died uh, several decades ago, believed that any attempt to find God through a metaphysical route, to, you know, posit God as the being who must have created the world, for after all, the world had to have had a cause, and therefore it must be a creature like God, that all of this was impious, that it was wrong, that God is as Karl Barth put it, and Updike was very fond of quoting, totaliter aliter, totally other, and that natural theology was an intellectual imposture, and it would not lead to God. It would only lead to some sort of impoverished, you know, human philosophical conception of God.
0: Speaking of God, it seems like there's some kind of hurricane outside to explain the sound effects. You're listening to Thoughtcast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with the writer Jim Holt, the author of Stop Me If You've Heard This, A History and Philosophy of Jokes. He's now working on a new book about the puzzle of existence. Okay, here's a mind-twisting question for you, Jim. It's from Dennis Dutton, a professor of philosophy at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, who also co-edits the website Arts and Letters Daily, and his question to you is, quote, The human mind was built by evolution to ask questions about the existence of items and classes of items in the inventory of everyday existence. Why do clouds exist? Why are there wolves? Why is there a bug in my soup? Since human beings can entertain the idea of the whole universe as a thing, or at least fancy they can, it follows that they may want to apply this existing asking capacity to it as well. Isn't this just a confusion? to regard the totality of everything as itself a thing. Well, what do you make of that, Jim? Mm.
1: First of all, let me take issue a little bit with Professor Dutton's uh, notion of the imaginative capacity of the human mind as molded by evolution. Uh, I began my intellectual career uh, in pure mathematics, and one of the elements of mathematics that really interested me was the theory of infinity and in set theory. And of course, it turns out that there's in there's a hierarchy of infinities that stretches, you know, into almost unthinkable regions, but we can conceive of these infinities because we can describe them mathematically. Now, our ability to do this is in no way useful uh, you know, it's not it doesn't enable us to propagate our genes, it's not adaptive, it's a byproduct of Abilities that are evolutionarily useful. And Professor Dunn himself has explained art as a byproduct of traits that are adaptive. So he's suggesting that there's a false conceptual move here because each individual thing in the world may or may not have an explanation for its existence. It's reasonable to ask whether the world as a whole has an explanation for its existence. Well, I would say that it's reasonable to ask for that, uh, such an explanation simply because it's conceivable that nothing at all should exist. I mean, the possibility that the universe doesn't exist is at least logically possible. We, we, it's conceivable. For instance, we can imagine a universe that consists of nothing but a marble. And then we say, now, take the marble out of that picture, and what you have left is nothing.
0: Well, it seems that a lot of this discussion that you can have around the puzzle of existence is about the concept not of existence, but of nothingness. In fact, you've written this brilliant essay in Harper's, uh, that was in 1994, called Nothing Ventured, and I'd love you to read from it, if you don't mind. You're writing about how various philosophers have grappled with this concept of nothingness. Uh, Here it is.
1: Yes, um... Uh, Martin Heidegger was filled with angst at the very thought of nothing, although this did not keep him from writing copiously about it. (laughs) For Heidegger, the encounter with nothingness was suffused with the dread of one's own impending non-being, the dread of death. Jean-Paul Sartre, too, was possessed with a sort of horror vacui. Nothingness haunts being, Sartre wrote, in the treatise aptly entitled Being and Nothingness. Not even the cafés of Saint-Germain in Paris offered certain relief from nullity. He goes to the Café de Magot on a good day, quote, a fullness of being, to meet Pierre. Pierre is not there. Et voilà, a little pool of nothingness, a frisson of anguish. To be fair, it must be said that neither Sartre nor Heidegger was very favorably disposed towards the category of existence either. Roquentin, the autobiographical hero of Sartre's novel Nausea, finds himself, quote, choked with rage, unquote, at the, quote, monstrous lumps of gross, absurd being that environ him as he sits under a chestnut tree in Bouville. By the way, Bouville in, in French means mudville. Uh, <laughs> the universe, in all its gooey contingency, is de trop, which means, in French, too much. For the phlegmatic Heidegger, the feeling elicited by what is was not so much nausea as boredom. Ontologically speaking, the existentialists were fussy customers, neither something nor nothing afforded them much jollity.
0: Do you remember writing that paragraph and what it was like to put those words together?
1: I, actually reading that paragraph takes me back to a time when I wrote in a a rather Mandarin style. I I think as people, as writers get older, good writers rather than bad writers, they tend to uh, uh, develop a simpler, more austere style. And so I, I see in that paragraph a lot of uh, young man's phrase-making that I would be uh, a little bit embarrassed by today.
0: Are you really being honest with me? It's just delicious. Yeah, yeah. It's no, a <laughs> delicious paragraph.
1: <laughs> Not the way I just read it. But oh. I, I look back at the things that I wrote at the beginning of my career, which I was very <laughs> proud of at the time. I weep with embarrassment. I mean, you know, It's the um, a little bit, I think, in a sense, we were talking about John Updike. He was a man who could, in almost every sentence, do something magical and magnificent. You know, every Updike sentence demands applause. And so, so many young writers try to emulate Updike. And when they do, it's usually a disaster. And so many of my early pieces were like that. But I think, yeah, I was just on the cusp of getting a decent style when I wrote that.
0: Um. <laughs> well, at the end of that juicy paragraph... You go on to write about what the 20th century British philosopher A.J. Eyre thought these guys were up to. He thinks that they were fooled by the grammar of nothing because they were treating nothing as a noun, as something, when in fact it isn't.
1: Yeah, there, there's a famous uh, sentence from uh, Martin Heidegger, which in, in German is das nichts nichtet. I, my German pronunciation is horrible, but that's basically it. And what that means in English roughly is nothing nuts. So he sees nothing as the participle of a verb, to nuth. Uh, and so nothing is not nothing. It's a kind of negative force that annihilates things. And it, it, it's sort of a good image, I think, of this it was in the, uh, the Beatles movie, um, a Yellow Submarine, where there's a sort of vacuum creature uh, in the, uh, in the ocean, I think, and it starts sucking up things around it and eventually it sucks up all the uh, scenery. And finally, it sucks up itself, and then the beetles pop out when they're submarine, I think and And one philosopher, uh, the late Robert Nozick, who was a Harvard philosopher who wrote very interestingly on the question, "Why is there something rather than nothing?" said, "Well, maybe nothingness is a kind of uh, annihilating force which acts on itself and negates itself, thereby giving rise to the world. Now, this is a kind of, you know, it's it's this sort of thing and, uh, uh, that might occur to uh, a stoner. Uh, it's a, an amusing image, but I think A.J. Eyre would be very unhappy with this because, essentially, you're treating nothing as though it's a name for something.
0: Is it possible, Jim, that this is sort of an intellectual game that you guys are playing here, not really about finding truth, but an opportunity to show off a bit.
1: Uh, you know, oddly, the question "Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does the world exist at all?" is one that that philosophers have been have shied away from uh, because it's very difficult to avoid descending into nonsense and. Um, there are only, I would say, a half dozen contemporary philosophers who have, who have really grappled with the question. One of them is the late Robert Nozick of Harvard, who also wrote, of course, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, the great libertarian uh, treatise. Another one is uh, Derek Parfit, who is at All Souls in Oxford, uh, which is um, probably the most ethereal, intellectual world one could ha- inhabit. Wags joke, it's all souls, no bodies. You know, <laughs> at, at All Souls, you don't, you don't have to teach undergrads. You just, you just think. <laughs>
0: And, and uh, they, pay so
1: they pay you. And they pay you. Yeah, feed they give you. you a, they give you lunch every day, a hot lunch. Mm. Uh, and and so, you don't actually. It's it's easy to show off in philosophy. And actually, a lot of what professional philosophy is is uh, point scoring and competition. And that's why it gets very very technical. And uh, if you can master technical logic and you can master uh, areas of, uh, of physics, that gives you a, a leg up in philosophy. Um,
0: and yet. Scientists and physicists are breaking new ground here. A golden key, perhaps, to all of this is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which seems to say that anything can happen, even if it defies reason, provided it happens quickly and on an extremely small scale. Is that right?
1: That's pretty much right. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that there are limitations on how precisely we can know reality.
0: Hence the uncertainty. (laughs) Isn't saying that anything can happen, rather um, making a mockery of of ourselves, of our ability to use logic in the world.
1: No, the in fact the, the the principle is the outcome of the application of very rigorous logic to scientific data. And what's interesting about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, it says that that anything can happen, provided it's very brief or very low energy. Now the universe would seem to be neither very brief nor very low in energy. It's lasted for 13 billion years so far, and it seems to have lots of energy. But in fact, if you do the accounting, if you add up all of the positive energy of the universe, the stars, the matter, and so forth, and then look at the negative energy of the gravitational field, the total energy of the universe is very close to zero. So that means the Heisenberg uncertainty principle permits it to pop into existence out of nothing, as it were, which is a very paradoxical result.
0: You're listening to Thoughtcast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm talking with Jim Holt about his forthcoming book on the puzzle of existence. Jim, this puzzle only gets deeper when we talk about quantum tunneling, and that is the charming name for a concept that cosmologists like Alex Vilenkin at Tufts used to explain how the Big Bang started and how we could get something from nothing. Uh, And he argues that through this brain-twisting process of quantum tunneling, space and time, i.e. existence as we know it, are created. So Holt, let me ask you, what is quantum tunneling and how does it get us from nothing to something? Mm.
1: By the way, Alex Vilenkin has probably come closer than any other scientist to explaining how a universe could come into existence out of pure nothingness. And what he shows is that if you begin with a state of nothingness, which, by the way, he defines as a closed space-time geometry of zero radius. I'm just throwing that in for the, uh, for the wonks <laughs> That's out the there. Definition. Um, and he does a few calculations with those equations, and he says, ah, there's a finite probability that out of this state of nothingness, a little patch of space-time can spontaneously appear. This is consistent with quantum physics. And once you have that little patch of space-time, that's all you need to make a universe because then this process called inflation happens and the whole thing blows up into the vast universe we see around us. Now, you know, this is very speculative physics on, uh, on Professor Valenkin's part. It's, it's brilliant and imaginative, but there's a little bit of a problem with it. Where are these laws of quantum physics that summon a universe out of nothingness that that allow for quantum tunneling.
0: How can you have an equation in nothingness?
1: Exactly. The the equations, are they somehow written into nothingness? Are they uh, they in the mind? Stephen Hawking would say, well, that's the mind of God. But God is not part of our hypothesis here.
0: Maybe God is an equation.
1: Uh, that's, I think that's very heterodox um, i don 't think the Pope is going to agree with that characterization of the divinity in any case, so you can always if you assume that there are certain principles like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that are simply true and are simply out there, you can explain how the universe comes into being. but the problem is where do those principles exist you know how do they come to how do they preexist the universe and you know all in, in the uh, history of philosophy the The standard explanation for that was uh, Plato's uh, explanation is that these are eternally existing ideas that are quite apart from the world that we see around us. But still, if they're ideas, if they have any kind of existence, they're part of the something that we're trying to explain. I mean, that's the whole problem with explaining how something, why is there something rather than nothing? Because anything you cite to explain it is part of the something to be explained. Right. But I do think that to the extent that science can give an answer to the riddle of existence, why the universe exists, I think that the sort of strategy that uh, Alex Vilenkin is following is, is the most fruitful one.
0: I wonder what he would make of this description, this definition of quantum tunneling that I dug up on Wikipedia. It describes it as transgressive, practically a criminal act. It's, quote, a phenomenon in which a particle violates the principles of classical mechanics by penetrating a potential barrier or impedance higher than the kinetic energy of the particle. So apparently we are the product of what? A transgression? A rape Hmm. of Newton? What's going on here?
1: (laughs) No, I mean, precisely. Quantum tunneling says, I'm within my apartment in Greenwich Village right now. Quantum tunneling says that there's a finite probability that in the next moment, I will be on the other side of the wall that separates me from Greenwich Village. It's um, in other, you know, so quantum tunneling says that I can go from a state of nothingness into a state of something too. It sounds transgressive, but actually if you think about these things mathematically, it makes perfect sense. I mean, that's the, the weird thing about contemporary physics is that if you try to think of it in terms of, you know, in common sense terms, it's a disaster.
0: And yet this quantum tunneling seems to be rather pedestrian as well. For example, when I use my cell phone a lot and it gets quite hot, that is supposed to be a sign of quantum tunneling at work. Uh, If I can go back to my favorite source, Wikipedia, again. It says that quantum tunneling is a source of major current leakage in capital V, very large scale integration electronics, and results in the substantial power drain and heating effects that plague high speed and mobile technology. What are we you always to do find the uh, concept
1: <laughs> of quantum tunneling very seductive, but when you think about it, returning to the to the metaphysical question, trying to build a conceptual bridge between nothing and something, you know, quantum tunneling is just the sort of image. It's it's just a sort of conceptual tool that gives you some hope. Um, and if it causes your cell phone to heat up, that's too bad.
0: <laughs> Last question, Jim. Do you have a favorite philosopher and if so, I'm going to guess it's Wittgenstein.
1: Uh, Wittgenstein, I think, was the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, and was also a what of the one of those extraordinary human beings. He was a kind of you know a secular saint, a man of such a, a fierce intellectual passion, a man who was so devoted to philosophy that you know he actually suffered. He he you know he could not let these he could not give these questions up. And Wittgenstein was especially enthralled by the idea that there, there, there should be a world. He said, you know, it's not how the world is, but that the world is. That is the basic mystical intuition.
0: But he's not um, your favorite philosopher. Well,
1: I mean, the, the philosopher that I find most congenial right now is named Derek Parfit, a philosopher at Oxford. And I would add the name of Thomas Nagel, who uh, teaches at New York University. And what inspires me in all three of these cases, in Wittgenstein, Nagel, and parfit is just the intellectual passion and dedication and in, in wittgenstein's case he was quite psychologically tormented by philosophical questions in the case of nagel and parfit you couldn't meet two more congenial clubbable fellows but they each have a an unerring instinct for you know the really deep questions the light of reason always shines on them uh, on every topic they touch and i find that uh, it gives me the highest intellectual pleasure of anything.
0: Maybe reassuring since your topic is the puzzle of existence.
1: and they they're, they're both philosophers who think it, it is deeply puzzling, and that reassures me because it would be terrible if I were writing a book about something that was you know a, a child's puzzle rather than a, than a really deep puzzle. And there are many philosophers who do think it's not the most profound question in, in philosophy. It's actually the silliest. Um, <laughs> and I, I hope they're wrong. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Jim. It's been quite a workout. My head hurts.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the writer Jim Holt on ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia. Please let us know what you think. Do you have a headache after listening to this? What's your take on the meaning of nothingness? To leave a comment, just go to ThoughtCast.org. And thanks for joining us.